As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And so this week is a kind of second part or continuing on of our of our conversation we started last week where we were discussing uh, baby loss awareness week here in the UK, um, uh, miscarriage. Um, and uh, I guess before we kick off again, another another health warning, a trigger warning, um, uh, we are going to continue talking about some of these themes and in particular also drawing the conversation on to abortion um, where that's going to be a very painful topic for many of those listening you know statistics show that i think approximately one in three women have uh, an abortion at some point in their lives and one in five one in six pregnancies end in miscarriage so these these painful topics affect almost everyone um in some ways um so yeah please be aware of that before we continue um but we wanted to really kind of draw out that final point from the conversation on miscarriage and about the really healthy and helpful change in language and approach the much more compassionate and kind of emotionally sensitive approach that recognizes uh children uh who die before they're born are still children are still babies um and talk about what that means or how that affects the conversation we also have in society around abortion yeah it, it is an extraordinary phenomenon that um miscarriage and abortion are both extremely common. And yet uh, the narratives that surround them are very different. And and so if we just review what's been happening with abortion in the UK, and I think that's the first thing just to say, I know we have many listeners around the world, including in the US, where the whole context in which uh, abortion occurs is is very very different and so it might be worth just very briefly recapping what's how abortion developed in the in the UK i think the important point is that first of all we had one of the very first abortion laws in the world and it was framed uh, the a legal abortion was framed entirely in terms of medical risk it's interesting that in the law it really says nothing about a mother's choice it's entirely framed in terms of the risk to the mother's health and life or, or the the health and of and welfare of existing children and 
it's two doctors who are who have to determine whether the risks of continuing the pregnancy are greater than having an abortion and uh but also importantly once that act came in in 1967 the nhs rapidly regarded providing legal abortions according to the abortion act was an nhs responsibility and it it became part of universal health care and so uh, every uh, nhs region every district every hospital had to ensure that it was providing um an abortion service under the terms of the act um and of course this is very different from what happened in the us where uh, the majority of mainstream health providers and hospitals decided that they didn't want to be involved in abortion and therefore it was something almost entirely carried out uh, by charities such as planned parenthood so ever since then we have had uh, freely available abortion uh under the NHS, provided it met the criteria of the Act. And um, over the years, there's been a sort of progressive increase in numbers, uh, steadily increasing overall year by year. And that increase has remained uh, a huge matter of concern, uh, not just for uh, those who are really concerned about the morality of abortion, but also just from a public health point of view. Because it was always said, once you make universal sex education and free contraception available, it was always predicted that the need for abortion will wither away. Why on earth would would you need that? If everybody understood, had proper sex education and access to free contraception, unplanned pregnancy will become increasingly rare. And yet, we seem to be seeing exactly the reverse, that rates continue to rise. And that's the case, even though, encouragingly, the UK has seen a lot of progress in reducing the incidence of teenage pregnancy uh, and things like that, which was a huge kind of cause for concern in the kind of 80s and 90s. And actually, numbers have been steadily dropping since then. And so I suppose a lot of the people who are having abortions are not going to be your kind of stereotypical 17-year-old girl who who accidentally fell pregnant with her boyfriend um, and is, you know, too young or terrified about the prospect of becoming a mother, you know, a lot of people having abortions are going to be women in their 20s and 30s who are in stable long-term relationships, but for various reasons decide, I do not want to see this pregnancy through. That's absolutely right. And um, the there has been a dramatic fall in teenage pregnancies and, and probably a major factor has been the use of long-term implantable contraception, um, which means that... Um, a person doesn't have to remember to take a contraceptive pill or use a condom or something like that. Hmm. Um, but the peak age group for abortions are, are is in the early to mid-20s. Uh, but as you say, many of the people who are having abortions are in uh, stable relationships, by no means not all. Um, and, and one way of looking at this is that the mean age or onset of regular intercourse is about 16 in our country at the moment, the mean age at which women want to have their first baby is around 30. And so if you just put it like that, what it says is that many people in our society want to have regular intercourse, uh, but they don't want to have a baby for whatever reason. Um, And that means it's almost inevitable there are going to be unplanned pregnancies, there are going to be contraceptive failures, there are going to be... um, 
you know, social events and coerced unplanned sex and all the rest. So, um, but nonetheless, the the progressive, the continuing rise in abortion rates are a matter of concern. And what the evidence is now coming out that here in the UK, we've seen quite a significant rise just in the last two or three years. Yes. And is that being driven by something to do with the pandemic? Do we understand what is behind that? I don't think we do. And actually, there's a bit of a problem because we don't have the latest figures. Uh, the, the latest uh, figures we have in the UK are with the first six months of 2022. But this showed a 17% increase on 2021, um, which is itself quite quite striking. And there is anecdotal evidence that in 2023... Uh, one of the major abortion providers reported an increase of about 30% on year on year in the number of abortions they were, they were providing. So there certainly seems to be a very significant increase. Now, and what the reasons are, I think, is, is still largely a matter for speculation. Okay, so we've got uh, increasing numbers of abortion, uh, and despite a, a quite medicalized framework passed in the original 1967 Act, in reality, it, it has been interpreted or used by the NHS to effectively offer abortion on demand. You do have to give a formal reason, but one of the reasons is, you know, I'm paraphrasing, it would cause, you know, harm to the mother's mental health. And so women overwhelmingly select that option as their kind of justification for why they would like an abortion. And on the whole, that's not questioned or probed. That's just accepted as a matter of fact. Well, just to correct you, the women don't select the option. It's the doctor who is, oh, is responsible right? to decide under which grounds the abortion. Um, so it's the doctor who says this would this abortion abortion would be appropriate under. And it's a particular ground which says continuing the pregnancy has a greater risk to the mental health or physical health of the mother than performing abortion. And the statistics show that an early abortion performed under good medical conditions has a lower risk to the mother compared with a pregnancy continuing to term and delivering a baby at term. And therefore, um, effectively, a doctor could argue that in any case, virtually any case, the risks of doing an abortion are less than the risks of continuing the pregnancy. And in reality, it's unheard of for women who wish to have an abortion to be refused, whatever their circumstances, as long as they meet the legal criteria in terms of gestation of the child, um, they, they are granted the right to an abortion. Yes, the other uh, criteria that the, the doctor has to, or whoever is... Um, assessing the person is to assess that they are making a genuinely free choice. And uh, that means that they, counsellors uh, who are assessing women, are, t are told that they, they must check, quotes, that the woman is not being coerced by anybody uh, to, um, to have an abortion. And so, for instance, if she's seen at an abortion clinic, it is offered to her if she comes with a partner and if the counsellor suspects there is some coercion going on, um, the the counsellor can ensure that the woman is seen in private alone and that is offered, you know, can 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 
express whether or not she genuinely wants to to go ahead with the abortion. Hmm. So another important development in the in in the narrative about abortion was the development of pills by post. It has been true that for many years, abortion activists have wanted to demedicalize the whole process of the abortion. They wanted to take it away from um, a medical control and make it something that could happen in a patient's home uh, without direct medical involvement. And so uh, this was always resisted by uh, governments and by uh, many doctors and and that was why the Abortion Act said that abortion could only take place in a licensed premises, and that was either an NHS hospital or a properly licensed abortion clinic. But what happened uh, in the pandemic is that emergency regulations were brought in because of the risk of cross-infection, and it was agreed by Parliament that the requirement to for a woman to attend an abortion clinic uh, to receive the pills to be assessed would be taken away. And so we moved to what was called pills by post. And so the, uh, the current situation, because it is now continuing in the same vein, the current situation is that a woman merely has to ring a number uh, and say that she is pregnant and would like to have an abortion. She has a telephone consultation and provided that she uh, says that she's less than 10 weeks gestation um, and the um, person on the end of the phone, who's uh, the counsellor or midwife, is uh, convinced that this is a, that she's acting genuinely and is not coerced, um, she will be sent a pack including the, the abortion medication and also a pregnancy test to check uh, after several weeks to see that the abortion has been successful. And so this is currently going on. And, and one of the, I think, interesting and, and disturbing factors is that it's not even necessary for the, the person's own general practitioner to be informed. Um, this can be kept entirely confidential uh, within, the, um, within the abortion clinic or wherever it's being um, managed and apart from keeping statistics uh, nobody else need know hmm. and has there been a general shift before this away from kind of surgical abortions towards medical abortions anyway and this has kind of accelerated that because previously you'd have to come to a clinic and take a pill but already the, am I right in thinking the majority of abortions were were um, medical, you know, as a result of taking medication rather than having a surgical operation. That's right. And so that this has been a big uh, shift taking place over many years. Uh, before, previously, it was the majority of abortions were actually performed as surgical procedures under a general anaesthetic uh, in a hospital or an abortion clinic. But um, there's been a steady increase in the the numbers of medical abortions using pills <clears throat> and currently i think the statistics are about 85 percent of all abortions uh, in the uk are now medical and the recent statistics suggest that about 50 percent of those are happening at home without any involvement uh, in a in a clinic and which is, which is remarkable given that until 2020 such a thing was literally impossible 
Um, and now half of almost half of all abortions now take place completely at home outside of a medical setting with, as you have expressed, very limited regulation or oversight or safeguards. It is remarkable. And and already we're starting to see those people who work in the area reporting, starting to see, you know, unanticipated consequences of all this. Um, and if you think about it, um, you know, you imagine here is uh, a woman, she may be married and maybe in a stable relationship. She may be in a, uh, not in a stable relationship. She discovers she's pregnant. She agonizes about what to do. She phones the number. She gets the pills. Some counselors have said that, that women have, have described, you know, I've got the pills. They're sitting on, on my kitchen uh, table. I, I'm not sure whether I should take them or not. I keep staring at them. So, so, you know, am I going to take them or not? And then if I do take them, I can have really quite unpleasant symptoms, cramping, pain, nausea, and then bleeding. And, and all this is going to take place in my bathroom. Hmm. Um, and without, nobody need know what's going on. There might be other children in the flat. There might be other people there. Do they know what's going on? Are they aware of of this, you know, this painful reality that's going on? And then we're having people saying, you know, it was a terrible thing that happened and it all happened in my bathroom. And now every time I go to have a shower, I have flashbacks. And we've heard of people who said, I have to move the fl- from my flat. I cannot stay in that place. This is just too painful. So this kind of, it's just a very strange kind of shift in people's experience. And yet the, the statistics suggest, you know, that um, over 100,000 abortions will have taken place at home uh, in the last year. And, and anecdotally, the numbers are going are increasing. And it's striking to me as well that, you know, this was this was first introduced as a kind of temporary COVID measure when we were all locked down at homes. And it, you know, you could you can understand the rationale behind the argument that says, you know, previously women had to physically come into a clinic to get these pills, but they easily fit into an envelope. Why don't we temporarily make it a, a provision? But it is striking to me at how little debate there was about that at first, and then two years later when the lockdown was long over, there was no pandemic justification for it, the government decided to to extend this permanently and make it permanently available. Again, with almost no, as far as I can recall, kind of public debate or conversation around it, as you're saying, quite a, a major reform to how abortion works in this country. Yes, and that word reform is very loaded, isn't it? Because part of me is just thinking that, you know, the emotional reality for thousands and thousands of women. Is this really a reform? You know, at least if I was having an abortion in a uh, in an abortion clinic, there were professionals there. There was somebody who would hold my hand. There was somebody who would make me a cup of tea and support me emotionally and be there for me. Um, but if this is happening alone and in my bathroom, um, it, it, some of it feels almost brutal and you know to say that this is an advance in hmm. compassionate care uh it seems quite hard and striking the complete opposite trajectory to the conversation 
around you know miscarriage and the ending of a baby's life from another another way you know that has all been about let's bring it into the light let's talk about this more let's make sure women don't go through this alone and here the trajectory on abortion is the opposite it's the ultimate privatization of abortion saying no no no, let's push this out of the public sphere into the private sphere potentially even something that women do completely by themselves you know never speaking to another human being except on the phone or on some video consultation at home alone in their bathrooms maybe their partners maybe their other children have no idea what's going on and saying this is something that women a, 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 a road that women must walk or should walk entirely by themselves yes and you know i don't read out these words in any sense to you know with any kind of of trying to make a point or anything else like that. but these are the words i found on on one of the leading pregnancy abortion providers where the question was you know what how should i deal with the the pregnancy remains and and what it says on the website is it says you will pass the pregnancy at home or another place of your choosing you can decide how you wish to dispose of the pregnancy remains they can be flushed down the lavatory wrapped in tissue placed in a small plastic bag and put in the dustbin and so the contrast between, you know, these these are people desperately trying to be compassionate, to be sensitive, to recognise the distress that an abortion must must be causing, but the contrast between the uh, the narrative that we saw last week, where we were talking about Baby Loss Awareness Week, uh, is very striking. And I guess the way this connects to our previous conversation about miscarriage is the kind of slightly jarring n- narratives around the two things. You know, we talked last week about how, thankfully, uh, com- the, the language and the culture around miscarriage and baby loss has changed. And now everyone, or increasingly, people would talk about these as babies who were precious, who were human like us, who uh, mattered, um, who, uh, and, and this goes back as young as two, three, four weeks since conception, that they cannot be replaced, that they count, that they will leave, you know, a lifelong impact on their parents, however short their lives were. And yet at the same time, when it comes to uh, pregnancies, which end not in miscarriage, but in abortion, we deny almost every element of that. And we talk about these are not babies, these are fetuses, or or just pregnancies. Um, They're not human, they're not equivalent to us their the ending of their of their life won't leave any lasting impact on anyone around them um and it's this when you hold these two narratives side by side it's it's striking Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like 
Ask N.T. Wright Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong. Because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So I guess the question that then arises for us is, how is it possible that these two different narratives that seem to be almost polar opposites around babies uh, and pregnancies and baby loss, how can they run side by side in, in a single society? How can a lot of the same individuals uh, believe in both of these stories at the same time? And my response is that this is fundamentally an unstable situation. This simply cannot persist indefinitely. And I personally think that the baby loss narrative will become more dominant. And that I think that what we need, just as we need to hear the stories the the authentic stories of people of what it felt like to lose a baby as we already saw on the website and the the baby loss awareness week so i think we just need to hear the authentic story of of what it felt like for women to have an abortion and and what their emotions and feelings were um i know from past experience that often when women talk about their own abortions they they often use language about babies. So whereas the professionals are bending over backwards to use extremely sanitized language about pregnancy loss and remains, it seems that often women are, are more in touch with the reality of what, of what is going on. And therefore, I think that just encouraging people to be honest, not trying to score points. Of course, you know, it is a very polarized situation. And Everybody's coming from somewhere. Um, and, you know, as a pediatrician and as a Christian, uh, I do strongly believe that every life is precious and every life is unique. Um, and this recognition of, of, of the significance of the life of the baby in the womb is something which I think is deeply embedded in our humanity. And it's as though our society is is rediscovering this. Yeah. I mean, the tagline of Baby Loss Awareness Week is breaking the silence around baby loss. And it's it's hard to disagree with the idea that actually there's an, another silence, another taboo around abortion, um, something that, you know, affects a huge number of women, but for whom women often feel unwilling or unable for various reasons to talk about. And it can only be healthy for us society to not kind of have this conspiracy of silence and obfuscation, but instead to... Um, I've heard people to be honest about how it felt, about who they think was aborted or what was aborted, and and to be able to share stories because, as you say, akin akin to what was on the baby loss um, uh, website um, awareness awareness week website. I, I guess, but another question I would have is for those who do kind of 
hold those two things in attention, you know, massive sensitivity around miscarriage and baby loss and the use of all the language of baby, whilst also a total commitment to a kind of abortion on demand as a fundamental human right for all women, which is probably a lot, a large number of people believe those two things side by side. Is the way they square that circle all about saying that the status of the child is really dependent on the parent's desire? And so when a child is desired and then they die through miscarriage, that's a tragedy. They are an equal human being to us and and we must you know grieve with them as a bereavement. When the child is not desired and they die as a result of an abortion, that is an, a morally neutral act that wasn't a human being, but just a clump of cells. And so, as you see, the, the kind of morality state, the moral status of the of the of the fetus is almost dependent on how their parents think about it. Yes, I I think that many people, including health professionals, really don't want to go there. They don't want to push this to that kind of binary. They would just say we're being incredibly sensitive. You know, we're taking, this is often called patient-centred care. So I take my cue from the patient. If the patient says, you know, this is a baby, I'm, I'm caring for my baby, then yes, we use all the baby language. We're being very patient-sensitive and caring. But if it becomes apparent that the language that is being used, what is being implied is that this being is is not wanted or that it's a pregnancy or whatever then we'll be patient-centered we'll adopt we'll seamlessly move to this other language and uh you know and many practitioners say you know i'm not a philosopher i'm not a theologian i'm not going to make any decisions about the moral status of the unborn i'm simply being sensitive and i can see how that is a very um helpful way to frame it when you're thinking of yourself as a service provider these are my clients even customers and therefore i need to re you know let them frame what's going on here and as you say above all be sensitive to their language and their terms but it feels to me fundamentally dissatisfying because it does seem to say that we don't know or believe or care if that thing person whatever you want to think of it inside the womb is like i mean i mean in there is an objective reality there must surely be humans cannot be entirely contingent on other human beings there must be an objective reality and it's there's a kind of it feels to me like there's a willful as you say refusal to stare that that uh, tension in the face and admit to the incoherence because it's just kind of difficult to acknowledge that we're actually acting in two mutually contradictory ways I agree with you. I'm, a, you know, we've been told before in these podcasts we should try and have more disagreement. But I'm sorry, Tim. I'm going to have to agree with you here. I mean, the fascinating thing is that once the baby is born, whether the parents want this baby or don't want this baby makes no difference at all to our commitment to the baby. I mean. Uh, now society is saying this baby has a unique value and the fact that some people want this baby, some people don't want this baby, some people are positive, some people are less positive, you know, some people are wanting to give this baby up for adoption, whatever, doesn't make any difference to the, the value and the significance of the baby. So, so there is this extraordinary 
in incoherence. You know, once the baby's born, everybody says it's the unique status of the baby. But it's the unborn, it's the hidden being that we can now have this almost postmodern kind of view. Well, it all depends. It's a language game. And, you know, the Schrodinger's cat, isn't it? You know, (laughs) it changes depending on how you look at it. Yeah, there, there is something about that. And so that's why I think more discussion about the narratives, more discussion about the reality. Um, and I think this is where the Baby Loss Awareness Week is helpful because it's it's just recognising reality. It's, not, it's, it, it's bringing it out of ideology. It's bringing it out of culture wars and pro-life versus pro-choice. And it's just saying, can we please recognise the reality of what's happening here? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me that you might actually, you know, have some unexpected allies in this desire to kind of be more honest around abortion from some of the more kind of radical end of the pro-abortion lobby. You know, there's a movement in America I'm aware of called Shout Your Abortion, which is, again, an effort to kind of break the stigma, but it's led entirely by people who believe very passionately in a woman's right to an abortion all the way up to 40 weeks. And they see society's kind of squeamishness to talk about it and to confront what is happening and and insistence that this is a private act that is very sensitive and personal we don't go there is kind of a conspiracy of silence that actually hinders their cause of expanding access to abortion so i think it's fascinating that this idea of telling stories and being more honest about what is going on um you know you might actually have met at the other end or come all the way around and and met some of people you unlikely unlikely allies Yes, and there is a kind of theological, spiritual aspect to all this, and that is that, you know, if we ultimately believe that what matters is truth and transparency and that and that facing reality, however painful, however difficult it is, is fundamentally uh, better than cloaking things in silence, using euphemisms, not recognizing the reality of what is taking place in our own homes and our own society. Uh, there is a, a fundamental Christian desire for transparency, honesty, and, uh, and, and speaking the truth, but, but at the same time, speaking the truth in love, mm. being sensitive, recognizing this, the deep, deep emotions. And, and of course the reality is, you know, for so many women who are choosing to have an abortion, you know, by pills, by post, they're doing it with a desperately heavy heart. They're doing it because they feel there is no alternative, Uh, whether it's because they feel with a cost of living crisis, you know, a child at this moment would be just destructive, destructive on, on my future, destructive in my life, destructive in my relationships. Um, but I think the reality when one speaks to women honestly is that is that so many do feel this deep conflict um, of of what um, the people who work in crisis pregnancy centres sometimes talk about the head heart the the conflict between my head is telling me that this is an entirely rational decision that now is the wrong time for me to become a mother and so on that economically it would be disastrous and it would affect my education and so on there's all these rational reasons and yet my heart is telling me something different that this is my child 
and that uh, I should care and protect and, and love my child. And so I think just being honest about the, the conflict that women find themselves in. And isn't it tragic that it's often because of social pressures or pressures from an unsupportive male partner, which is driving women to have abortions rather than this genuine autonomy. It's my body. It's my choice. I do whatever I like. That, I'm afraid, is by and large a myth. And there's one very tragic case we didn't mention earlier that kind of elucidates this point you're making where uh, uh, a woman was um, convicted of taking pills by post when she was long, long past the legal limit here in the UK. She was between 32 and 34 weeks pregnant and um, pills by post are only supposed to be used for pregnancies up to 10 weeks. Um, but she had basically misled uh, when she did her kind of online consultation, uh, was not honest about how far along she was. Um, and she was you know, ultimately caught and, and prosecuted and convicted. Um, and uh, the child um, uh, was born not breathing and confirmed dead shortly afterwards. And so she was kind of convicted of, of um, inducing an abortion after the legal limit and initially given a, a prison sentence of, I believe, two, two and a half years, um, which was prompted enormous kind of outrage and outcry here in the UK. Um, but it raises some really difficult questions, particularly as when you find out more about her background, which is that she already had three children. I believe one of them had special needs. Um, uh, she was racked with guilt and suffered depression um, and and kind of fell pregnant during lockdown when she was quite isolated. And yeah, just a really difficult background. And so you can understand how she got to the place of kind of lying to to get access to an abortion. But at the same time, you know, if there is to be a legal limit, then the, the law has to enforce it, does it not? Yes. And as you say, there was a, a great deal of outrage. And, and there is a movement here in in the UK from pro-abortion activists to completely decriminalise abortion, to to make it, to have it regarded simply as a medical procedure like any other medical procedure, but not to be controlled or governed by specific law. Um, and uh when this case hit the headlines the a number of abortion activists saw this as an opportunity to uh to push their case for decriminalization um but i i think you know i have previously argued that that the law has a role because it basically reflects what society as a whole believes and so the question we've got to ask ourselves is do do as a society do we really believe that uh, the life of a baby who's capable of of living and being born alive, that life is to be protected. And basically that's what our law currently says. And the fact that uh, somebody is, is held to account and, and found guilty of a law doesn't mean that they are criminalised. It doesn't mean that they have to be treated as a criminal or imprisoned. And so I think actually the the subsequent judgment that she was uh, found guilty of of uh, procuring abortion illegally but was not uh, imprisoned and and allowed to carry on caring for her, her existing children was was a, a just uh, sentence in other words there's a distinction between being felt guilty of a, offending against the law and then deciding what a just sentence should be
absolutely i think so to end the story uh, a few months later she, she, the case went to the appeal court and the appeal court reduced her sentence from 28 months to 14 months and also suspended it which basically meant that you know she wouldn't actually serve 14 months in prison unless she kind of reoffended again in the future which is obviously highly unlikely and so she effectively you know walked free but is still a convicted you know criminal and you know to use that language she's she's broken the law and she is um you know uh released from prison on license as it were um there's a, there's an analogy here which uh, i've frequently been involved with discussions about and that is when um a partner for instance uh assists the suicide or of um the part a partner who is begging to be helped to die for instance they've got severe terminal illness technically if that if that partner assists the person in in dying um out of compassion they are still guilty of the law of assisted suicide against the law of, of, of prohibiting assisted suicide but um the the crown prosecution service in general will say you know, if it was clear that this was genuinely motivated by compassion, that you didn't get any financial gain of it yourself, and so on and so on, therefore, you are not imprisoned. You are um, you're held guilty of the crime, but you are not uh, treated as as worthy of imprisonment. So, and I think that that balance between holding holding the law, but then showing compassion in the way that punishment is enacted is is an important balance and there's a reason isn't there why in our and in most legal systems there are two separate hearings or two separate legal processes you have a a kind of a fact finding one where you try and decide did this person do what they are accused of and then if they are found guilty you then have a secondary one which is what is the appropriate just punishment for this um and that might be going to prison but actually in many cases and not just for these but lots of other laws a judge rightly decides you know sending this person to prison is actually not going to be in their or in society's wider interest even though they have broken the law let's actually sentence them to a fine community service or sometimes just you know just it lays on file that, that you know there isn't any actual punishment per se but except the fact that they have been found guilty in a court of law and that seems to me important to keep those two issues separate whereas i think a lot of the the pro-abortion or at least the pro-decriminalization advocates use this very difficult case to say the whole law around abortion is clearly unjust because how can you justify this mother of three going to prison and therefore we should sweep away the whole thing which as you say is is a slightly deceptive way of saying actually i believe that women should be able to end pregnancies at any time of their choosing for any reason which is a a relatively radical position that doesn't have particularly wide support among the british public but the other really important thing to say here, and that is that if the previous abortion regulations were being carried out, in other words, if this was not pills by post, what would have happened is that she would have had to have had an ultrasound scan in the abortion clinic. They would have seen immediately that she was much more than 10 weeks. They would have worked out this baby was 30 weeks gestation, and they would have said, absolutely no way, you cannot have an abortion. So. It was predicted at the time of Pills by Post that this, that precisely this thing is going to happen, that, that uh, mothers are going to either deliberately or unintentionally get the gestational age wrong. If you don't do an ultrasound scan, it's bound to happen. 
and and yet the those who are promoting it said no 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 it's it's not nothing to worry about here you know we can trust women and so on so the i'm afraid that this kind of uh incident where in fact the pregnancy was much more advanced than was uh, anticipated will will continue to occur repeatedly um and and there are already other cases of it happening and this is the problem if you if you never do an ultrasound scan if the, if you simply take the mother's word that she's less than 10 weeks and what do you think we do about this information you know if, for those of us who as christians would like to see a reduction in the number of abortions that take place do you think we we should kind of leap up on some of these stories or the changes in law around pills by post and even the the growing kind of awareness around miscarriage and baby loss and kind of hammer that home and use that in our campaigning and say look a, a fetus can't be simultaneously a loved baby or a clump of cells at the same time and, and kind of pull people's attention to what we fleshed out with some of the kind of incoherent thinking we have on it or is that actually quite exploitative and is that you know instrumentalizing and manipulating around a separate issue which is, you know, the public policy question of pills by post and the question of how do we be more compassionate to those suffering from miscarriage. And it's actually a disservice to people who've experienced baby loss to almost drag them into the, the bitter, polarised debate around abortion. Well, I think, you know, you'll put your finger on, on what is such a, such a dilemma uh, to know what is a positive, healthy, compassionate response. I think I am convinced that, that just changing the law is not in itself a, a solution uh, you know the evidence is emerging in the usa that despite the fact that a number of states have made abortion virtually illegal under all circumstances that the total number of abortions that are taking place across the usa is probably not significantly changed uh, so that changing the law hasn't led to a very significant reduction in the total number of abortions. It's just meant that a lot of people are passing across state borders uh, or finding other ways of getting access to abortion drugs. So I am a believer in the slogan that says our goal is not to make abortion illegal, it is to make it unthinkable. And so the question is, well, how do we change attitudes? How is it possible for attitudes to change? And I think that's where the baby loss awareness it is possible that as you help people to tell their stories as as we try to break this silence and then ask the question you know is there a better way is there a better way of dealing with this problem of unplanned pregnancy um is there a compassionate and thoughtful way and and and, and the short answer is that i'm sure there is um a better way but we have to to bring these issues out into the public. You know, the better way is the way of genuinely providing a positive support for women who are pregnant, helping them to see there is an option. You don't have to have an abortion. Uh, reducing the stigma of being a single parent, providing better welfare and care and compassionate support, reducing the shame and so on. There, there are positive ways of, of responding to, the, to an un, unplanned pregnancy uh, but first we have to sh give people permission 
an opportunity to share their stories. And how would you respond to the accusation that if you start pulling in, you know, language and ideas from Baby Loss Awareness Week to this conversation, you are kind of being as manipulative as some of those pro-decriminalization people were when they were jumping on this tragic case of the woman um, who who procured an abortion illegally. You know, a, a person might say, you know, my miscarriage has nothing to do with your campaign to reduce abortion. Don't don't drag me into this. Well. I would say I'm not, my goal is not to have some massive public campaign talking about don't murder your babies or something like that. Um, Because I personally just don't think that helps. There are others who I respect who do believe that using that kind of language and, and, you know, graphically confronting people with, with images and so on is helpful. I personally think what I would love to feel is to, to allow the women themselves to tell their stories because I think that in itself would be very powerful and would cause people to question, you know, what is going on here? Is this a healthy way? Is this a positive social trend or is there a better way? That's, that's, so I'm not trying to manipulate or coerce or abuse language, but I do would love to, to see greater honesty and transparency. And you can see the power of story very used very effectively in Baby Loss Awareness Week, you know, which makes a big deal out of sharing the story, some of which we shared earlier on the, on the last last week's podcast. And we live in a moment, it feels like to me, a cultural moment in where there is enormous weight placed on the power of story. You know, you see that through like events like Me Too, you know, where people said, actually, hang on, if we just stop and listen to women talking about their experiences of harassment and abuse and assault, that actually, in my view, kind of reshapes society in some significant ways. And so... I can certainly see the power of saying let's encourage and make it possible for women to talk about their abortion stories and that has a cultural capital right now in Britain, even in secular Britain, that is kind of hard to deny. Right, well, we've covered a lot of ground there, um, but I hope it was an interesting conversation to listen into. Um, As I mentioned last week, uh, we, we don't want to pretend that we have all the answers on this particularly as as two blokes so so please do send us your thoughts your reflections your disagreements we're really interested to hear um what you the listeners made of of this conversation and, and make of these big kind of cultural shifts that we're seeing around questions of baby loss and pregnancy and abortion so uh please do get in touch with us you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um, and if you're interested in in digging into the question of abortion and christian ethics a bit more um dad's got a great section on his website johnwyatt.com that kind of takes you through with a kind of primer and then into some kind of gradually unfolding into some more in-depth uh, written pieces and um, and stuff like that so do take a look at that that's johnwyatt.com um, and otherwise we'll be back next week with another episode of matters of life and ten we'll be back next week with another episode of matters of life and death uh, but until then bye-bye Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.